Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is We're going to get there. (laughs) Soon enough. I'm Brandy. I'm Emma. I'm Mariana. I'm Patricia. (laughs) This is your book club with a twist, and we are your happy hour girlfriends. Today, we're taking a deep dive into last month's book pick, the New York Times bestseller, Infinite Country. This powerfully raw, incredibly moving, and timely novel has been a very important read for us chicas. And we are elated for the first time ever to share our Hora de Felicidad with the author. Welcome to Straight Up with Patricia Engel. Patricia is an award-winning author. Her other three books, The Veins of the Ocean, It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, and Vida, have received notable recognition and praise. For Vida, Patricia was the first woman to be awarded Colombia's National Prize in Literature, the 2017 Premio Biblioteca de Narrativa Colombiana. She is currently a professor of creative writing at the University of Miami. Patricia, bienvenida. Yes, yes, welcome. Yes, yes. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me to join you. I'm so happy to be here. I love oh, your program. You. Yay. Yay. Well, without <laughs> further ado, what does Ricardo have in store for us today, E? Ricardo is throwing it back to our first episode on this novel and bringing back that good old Colombian aguardiente. <laughs> Woo. Patricia, surprise pop quiz. Do you know the four ingredients that Colombian aguardiente is made of? There was four ingredients. I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it was um, well, anise or licorice. Yes. And sugar. Yes. Um, and I don't know. I always thought it was just fermented. That's pretty good, right? yeah. That is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's two of the four. Alcohol. Okay, I thought that just was a byproduct of the. Yeah, <laughs> and water. And wow. fun fact, only the water comes from Colombia. So I'm oh. curious as to why it's able to be spe- specified purely as Colombian, but whatever. Um, so today's cocktail pairing is called an aguardiente sour. Oh. Pretty similar to a whiskey or an amaretto sour, but with aguardiente and another ingredient, which I'll leave up to our bartender to discuss. But first, what mocktail will you be enjoying today, Mariana? I'll be sipping on a piña sour. Oh, that sounds good. I know, right? <laughs> Check out our Instagram page at Are These Books Drunk for the full recipe. And here to share the recipe for this sour cocktail is our sweet bartender. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ricardo. Woo! Ricardo! Ricardo! Hi, ladies. Welcome to the bar. Hola. Hi. How are you today? We're great. Especially great. with our new companion. We've got a special <laughs> guest. Okay. So <laughs> nice to meet you, Patricia. Nice to meet you, too. So for the cocktail of today, we are going to need a few ingredients that are pretty typical for sour. And uh, the special ingredient of today is called, of course, aguardiente. That is super typical for Colombia. Yes. And it gives us uh, this particular anise taste profile that I Love. think that is 
perfect for a sour cocktail. But to cut a little bit of the sour of the lemon juice, we're gonna use uh, orange juice too. So for this recipe, we're gonna need two ounces of aguardiente, the Colombia, so with, <laughs> of with anise. Um, one ounce of fresh squeezed orange juice, three quarter of an ounce of uh, fresh squeezed lemon juice, a quarter of an ounce of simple syrup, and egg white, or if you are like me and you're vegan and you can go with the fee foam brother uh, magical ingredient that is like the egg white without uh, having to break the egg and make a mess in your kitchen. And for the first time ever, Ricardo, I also have Fee Foam yes. Brothers. Yes. Woo, good for good you, jo- Brandy. Good Loving job, it. Brandy. Loving good. it. So because if we're using the Fee Foam, we don't have to do the dry shake. But if you're using the egg white, we need to put all the ingredients without the ice in the shaker, do a dry shake for at least a 20 seconds. So until you you can feel that inside the shaker, you are you're starting creating this foam uh, created from the egg whites. And then you start adding the ice and c- continue and finish the shake and you strain into our rock glass over ice. And this is our cocktail and it's uh, Aguardiente Sour. So oh, amazing, it's delicious. Recommendation all the time that you're making a sour. I know that it's not very uh, orthodox or let's say that it's not the rule, but always put egg white or the fee foam. Mm. It balance, it doesn't change oh. the flavor profile because it, it doesn't, but it changed the viscosity of the cocktail. And in particular for the sours, because you have citrus, the change of the viscosity helps you to feel less uh, the pungent sour profile oh. of the lemon in this case and it helps you to actually digest it even better. So without the fee foam, this would be extremely sour. Extremely sour. sour. Interesting. Good to know. Good to know. Good tip. A la vostra salute, ladies. Gracias, Ricardo. Thank you. As always. Bye-bye. Gracias. Bye. All right, chicas. Cheers. Cheers. Salud. Cheers, Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) Mmm. Y'all, I will never be able to say it enough. I love the flavor of anise. Mm. And I would never have discovered it without bartender Ricardo. He's the one who keeps it keeps. It's like a recurring flavor for us. And it's so good. It's specific. You love it or you hate it. So I'm glad that you love it. I I love it personally. I'm about it. (laughs) Same. All right. Should we get right into this? Let's do this. Yeah. All right, listeners. If you haven't read Infinite Country, what's wrong with you? What's well, wrong first with you? Of all, That's exactly. Right. <laughs> but it's the story of Mauro and Elena, young Bogotanos who meet and fall in love at the start of the new millennium. Facing dimming economic prospects in Colombia, they travel to the United States with their baby daughter in hopes of sending money back home to Elena's mother and eventually returning themselves. But when the complicated decision arises of whether to return home to Colombia or overstay their tourist visas, the family suddenly finds themselves at a crossroads. Will they go back to a country that feels like home, but offers their growing family fewer opportunities? Or will they stay in a country where they will forever be in hiding, but which offers them some opportunity to thrive? What follows is the heart-wrenching story of a mixed-status family splintered and divided between two countries, dreaming of the day they can be reunited again. 
Before diving into this deeper dive with Patricia, you might enjoy listening to the four episodes we did on this book prior if you haven't already. Yeah. Oh, oh Patricia, we loved your book so, so much. much. We really did. And I have to say right off the bat, the thing that's going to stick with me the most, I feel like, is all of the Colombian myths mm-hmm. that are woven through the story. And I feel like they just gave us such an insight into the soul of Colombian culture. Mm. And I wondered, are these stories that you researched? Are they stories that you grew up with? Are, I mean, are these myths that you heard as a kid growing up? Where did that come from? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for having me on your show. Regarding those um, stories and that ancestral history, um, Bogota, where a lot of the novel is set, is my mother's hometown, and it's where all my mother's family still lives. Mm. So um, I grew up with some of those stories that my mother had, you know, taught us and told us throughout my childhood. Um, my mother has some distant Huizca heritage of, 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 you know, of which she was always very proud. And Bogotá is the region that was populated by the Muisca, which is one of the the four um, advanced civilizations of the Americas. And very often when we hear about the Mayas and the Aztecs uh-huh. um, and the Incas, but not the Muiscas, even though they were they were just as um, you know um, advanced and just as uh, large a population. Yeah. Uh, so I knew some of those stories, but then um, there are a lot of stories in the novel that are not specific to the region. They're specific to other regions in Colombia, and those are stories that I learned over time just traveling um, in Colombia. My books are published there, so um, in recent years I've spent a lot more time there because of my books in different parts of the country. So a lot of these stories were told to me, and it's you know the case with the, a writer. Your curiosity just sort of leads you one story leads to another leads to another so it's really um a combination of stories that i grew up with stories that were shared with me by people uh, mm-hmm. those stories belong to them somehow and then um you know that uh, woven in with just my natural curiosity which led me to more stories i'm so curious because i know you were born in the states how do you feel i mean how did your parents go about keeping your colombian culture alive in you given that you were born and raised here? It's it's hard to say. Of course, times were different back then, you know. Uh, when, when you went home, you were home and not inundated with the outside world um, the way we are now. Yeah, uh, sure. So I always felt that my home was just like a mini Colombia, you know. It was just like a little satellite um, mm. in New Jersey. Um, and my parents, you know, uh, I, my parents did not arrive as children. My parents are, uh, arrived um, later. So it was very much who they were culturally. They always spoke in Spanish at home and um, mm. to us and to each other. And they were very proud. Um, and I guess my parents were just very, f- had a very firm sense of who they were. So they really resisted um, any kind of pressure to... Um, diminish themselves as Colombians, even mm. though, you know, I, I grew up in part in the 80s, which was a time of uh, turmoil in Colombia and also when the stereotypes about Colombians were probably at their highest and at their mm. worst. Um, so to be Colombian in the United States, Colombiano en el exterior, as we say, you know, what came with a lot of stigma sometimes um, Um. and with a lot of raised eyebrows and a lot of suspicion. 
And, uh, and so that was not always easy. But uh, my parents were so enormously proud of being Colombian. Uh, Colombia, if you know it, is an extraordinarily beautiful country. It is. Um, with spectacular biodiversity, incredibly warm and kind people. And, and there's so much beauty to it. And so my parents very passionately shared that with us. Um, and I came also from a very large family. So as I mentioned, my mother's from Bogota, but my father's from Medellin. And a lot of my father's family came to the United States. So even though my mother's family was all left behind, a a lot of my father's family was here. So I still had that very strong um, experience of growing up in a a large and, and tight Colombian family. Right. That is fascinating because we have kind of the opposite story where my mother is from Medellin and my dad's from Bogota and I was born <laughs> in Bogota. What I what I one of the things that I really really loved about what you did with this novel and just bringing the voice to Colombianos and the voice to immigrants because there is that stigma and I think that stigma still does exist from any immigrant from anywhere in the world. And I, I, I'm curious to know, just going back in time to when your parents first immigrated to this country, what was that like for them? Is that something that you referenced as far as like the way when they decided to immigrate into the States? Is that something that you brought to light in the novel? Are you referenced? Just to know, you know, Infinite Country is my, my fourth book. And um, all of my books have explored immigration diaspora in different sure. ways. And and um, so the story of the family in Infinite Country, th- that particular immigration story of how they came um, to the United States, that's not my parents' story. My parents' story is, is different. What they do have in common, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to write uh, Infinite Country, is that um, my experience not only in my family, but around so many loved ones in my community. You know, I was raised by and around immigrants. I have always lived in in diasporic communities. Um, Is that the experience of immigrating or or undergoing the process of leaving your homeland and making a life in a new country is often so complicated Mm. and so nuanced and full of doubt and full of regret, full of wondering if you made the right choice, um, full of wondering if you should just pack it up and go back home. And mm. um, and it's full of challenges all at every turn. Mm. And there's often no resolution. A lot of people go their entire lives wondering if they've made the right choice or their entire lives dreaming of going back. Mm. Um, so I never really saw that in any kind of book. Uh, and in the media, certainly, the the representation that you get of the process of immigrating is like it's a, it's a door you walk through and once you're here you're here and and that's it you made it and um, in fact the interior experience of immigrating is is far m- more cloudy and often changes day by day um, so that's really the space that I was writing into and that is certainly one that um, that my parents. I'm sure, you know, covered that terrain in their lives at different points. Yeah. Um, I know that my mother for many years had profound, profound homesickness. And, um, you know, until my brother and I were already, you know, of a certain age, mm. she had the idea that she was going back. Um, and then, you know, that, that's very often the case is sometimes immigration just sort of happens, you just yeah. sort of have the accumulation of time and all of a sudden you wake up and you have an entire life in another country that you mm-hmm. didn't necessarily plan. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I very much felt that with Mauro and Elena's story where it, it, they've been apart for so long, you know, by the end of it. And you realize this was never this was never where they thought they were going to end up. It was never part right. of the plan. Just suddenly here their family is in two completely different countries with no end to their separation in sight. Yeah. And that's that's often the case. Um, and sometimes people immigrate very reluctantly. Um, and it's not something that they ever dreamed of or that they ever wanted. And sometimes mm. people arrive as tourists and then it's just, you mm-hmm. know, as happens with the characters in Infinite Country, they just decide to stay a little longer and a little longer and a little longer. And, and life happens. Mm. And life right. happens. Yeah, life happens. <laughs> sort of off that, Patricia, I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit into this idea of the American dream and Elena's sort of realization that the American dream is a, is a myth that we that we and the world sort of carry. Mm. Well, I think that is a myth. The American dream is American made <laughs> mm. for the world to consume. But the American dream is is not as prevalent outside of America as Americans believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the American dream is, so true. is sort of, you know, the product of its own hype. And, and you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's propaganda because there are a lot of people who have no desire to come here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I think those that phrase American dream is not one that Elena ever utters in the novel. You know, uh, Mauro, who's the one who has kind of, you know, more wanderlust, it's really just his own frustrations with his country that mm-hmm. propel him to go elsewhere, right? But their first choice is Spain because of the language. Right. And and they're denied visas. So they end up in the United States, which, okay, you know, um, but, but the American dream is not something that was beckoning. It was really just, you know, just looking for, for more opportunities from, from what he had available to him where he was. Uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, the ideas that people have in the United States as a result of the media, of movies, of whatever. Mm-hmm. They're so influenced by that. Mm-hmm. And um, the reality is quite different. Mm, yeah. But but this idea of the American dream is really something that people in the United States are, are the biggest consumers of this idea, <laughs> <laughs> more so than people outside um, the U.S. Yeah, and we certainly see Elena real. I don't want to say realize because, as you said, it's never something she bought into. But we certainly see her wondering throughout the novel why people think it's such a safe country here versus Colombia when she's seeing all this violence. She, she's definitely very aware that many of the problems that people claim, you know, happen in other countries are happening right here in this supposedly extraordinary country. Yeah, and... The thing is, when when you you analyze a nation bit by bit, well, then you can see that really um, the individual parts are maybe not what you think they were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what she ends up saying is that most people stay for this idea of opportunity, right? And right. opportunity is just this word that she hears here and there. And, and what does it mean? And really, it means different things to different people. Because they're coming all from different countries and different circumstances, the different families that they, they meet um, in their trajectory. Um, opportunity, sometimes just uh, more economic opportunity, more, mm-hmm. you know, dollars are worth more than their own currency. And that's it. That's enough. It's not. An, or 
you know, maybe just a little bit more safety from where they're the, the place that they have left behind. So it means different things to different people. Very often it's just having the ability to be able to send money back home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the, what she comes to understand is that th- there's she has no illusion that, that she's living in a paradise. And um, I think she understands nobody really has that illusion. And in fact, people are making daily negotiations in order to justify staying where they are. And it's really based on these very, um, you know, specific things like, you know, just just some more money in your pocket. Which if that means sending it back home, that's not maybe not something to be judged in that sense. But yeah, money is I think that's that's a huge issue in this country is is our um is our the importance that we place on money and I, something I mean I guess I'm veering a little bit but in this country it feels like we we live to work instead of work to live which is not related to any question I was about to ask you I actually wanted to throw in a <laughs> listener question that someone has sent oh. us for you that actually ties back to the first question that we asked you relating to uh, the Colombian myths but one of our listeners Avika wrote in and she her question for you is in the book, there's quite a few Colombian legends. Which legend was your favorite while growing up? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I have um, a few, you know. I I always love the stories of um, of the animals, you know, the, the great animals who ruled the world, the jaguar, the snake, and the condor, and obviously mm. that's, that's how they ended up on the cover. cover. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, the original title for Infinite Country was The Jaguar, the Snake, and the Condor. Oh yeah. So um, I I always like those stories about you know um, what the the those powerful animals um, have taught the human species and how we came to live together, populate the earth. And I also like um, uh, the story of Bachue emerging from the from the lake um, with the boy on her hand and together mm. they populated the earth and mm. um, taught their descendants um, how to live and how to be, you know, citizens of the earth and and um, before their time comes and, mm. and they die and return to the underworld. Well, I'm glad you touched on the title of the book because that was a question I actually had for you. In one of our episodes, we were ping-ponging about uh, the title, and I, I'm so curious to hear what the title means to you. Like, Where does that come from? How do you think of Infinite Country as being the the namesake of this novel? Well, so as I mentioned, the original title and the title the entire time that I was writing it was The Jaguar, the Snake, and the Condor. Mm-hmm. Um it, and when um, it came closer to, you know, uh, becoming a published book, then I changed the title to Infinite Country, which is from a line in the book. I don't want to say exactly where it is, but it's towards the end. <laughs> but um, so it comes from, you know, uh, Karina, who you find out is narrating the this book, is really assembling the chronicle of her family's story. So her own, her family's own sort of myth, her fam- what will become her, mm-hmm. her family's ancestral story. And how she then, um, as a person whose life has been determined and defined and divided by borders in so many different ways and by paperwork and all the complications that become of that, how she sees um, also the the infinite infinity or the freedom um, that is only available within uh, 
I'm just going to give it away within love. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's that's so interesting to note. The title came from the line in the book and not vice versa. Well, Patricia, I love that you mentioned love because in one of our previous episodes, we asked each other a very personal question about where we find ourselves belonging or where we think our roots are. And for me personally, I feel that I belong with my family and my loved ones and wherever they are, that's where I feel that I'm at home. We would love to know from your perspective, where do you feel that you truly belong? Where do you think that your roots lie? Um, that's a good question and um, not a simple one. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm sure I would have answered it in different ways at different points in my life. Sure. Uh, I, like you, am very close to my family, so I feel at home with them. But at the same time, my family has been dis displaced as a result of diaspora. Mm. So, um, you know, we're sort of a, a little entity um, adrift no matter where we are. So I, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, but somehow still have never really felt like I had roots there. Mm. And um, I have never lived in Colombia, but when I go there, there is sort of, there are, you know, sort of, soul echoes as a result of roots that somehow, you know, exist in my DNA. Mm. So it's hard to say, but I have to say that one thing I've um, sort of learned as I've gotten older is um, that none of those things really matter. And I, I don't really look for a place because I think that, uh, you know, we can make our place anywhere. Mm. And um, when we're sort of asked to be defined, as very often happens with the children of immigrants, and you get hyphenated and, you know, and you kind of are pushed towards choosing loyalties or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, there's real power in resisting that. And there's real power in the freedom and fluidity of being a diasporic person who belongs to a multitude of places. There's a, mm. a certain freedom that you have, a natural freedom, because really the, 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 the way, the order of the human species is one of movement, one of migration. Mm. So those of us who have it very recent in our family's story, I think there's a power in that. Um, there's a power in rootlessness. It's mm. actually, um, you know, um, whereas um, I think the trend in recent years or, or in recent decades has been to always diminish the value of that and to try to make the children of immigrants feel like you don't belong, you're not uh -huh. this, you're not that. Um, you know, you don't, you don't really have, have a home. And it's, it's actually the opposite. You belong mm. everywhere. I heard you say in an interview, uh, one of your many beautiful interviews, Migration is instinctual, a part of the natural order of the world, something to admire rather than to criticize or judge. And I thought that was so beautiful. And I realized actually from hearing you say that, that I had never really thought about people migrating as all animals do, that that is, like you said, part of the natural process of life. And I just thought that was so interesting. Yeah, we're, uh, we are the human animal, right? And we're not so different from anything else. But I think, uh, you know, people will, you know, will watch documentaries about animals and how they find their way to resources and, and travel so that they won't die as a species. And we're just like, wow, what, what instincts, you know, uh, nature is miraculous. Yet when we see humans do the same thing, 
we have been taught to look down on that and think, oh, they should just stay where they are. They should just stay within their borders that were determined by somebody mm-hmm. at some point. Right. Someone know? else. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you start to see it that way, you realize the true absurdity of it, but you also realize how um, people with agendas have, have trained populations to see things with a, a, a sense of inhumanity um, mm-hmm. and denying the natural um, fight for life of a species, even if it means that they they have to move. Well, speaking about fight, Mauro was a true epic fighter in my mind of the way he just wanted to really, his ultimate goal was to reunite with his beloved family. And you pictured for us, you wrote for us such a gorgeous ending with the family reuniting. Was there any point in time while you were debating or kind of doing um, an initial right of the ending? Did you ever think of an alternate ending? Did you ever question whether or not he would be able to make it through Mexico? Was that something that you ever considered? Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't necessarily know where the story was going to end when I started writing books. I mean, that's the fun of writing is you don't always know where it's going to go. But um, I have known many families like this, and um, the ending to me was a very typical one. Um, a lot of times, family uh, people think that once families are separated, that they're separated forever, and certainly that does happen. Um, but sometimes they are reunited, and sometimes it's a very fleeting moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know at the end of this book whether that moment that they have earned right. um, is going to last. And that uncertainty sure. is something that never leaves them. Uh, so I, I knew that it would be an ending that would be true and authentic to their circumstances and certainly um, uh, would have to be something that was possible for them. I knew that they were the type of family that would, you know, not give up and, um, mm. and that that moment would be, would be well-earned and absolutely possible. And um, still ripe with the tension of uncertainty. Mm. Yeah. What was also gorgeous, though, is that everything that I had been through for, I guess, for that second or that moment in time was forgotten. It was all about them being together again and being able to live in that in that place in time. And yet the reality of their circumstances is that that may not may last. Not last. Right. Patricia, I cannot let you go without asking you this question. I had never heard the story of Omira Sanchez before, and I had never heard the story of Ingrid Betancourt before. And they haunt me when, you know, when I was reading the book, I, I did go and read, you know, articles about Omira and I saw the photos and I was so curious why you wanted to include those stories in this book, what the significance of them was for you in telling this story. Um, thank you. You know, I don't know if this was the case for you, Mariana, but I, I know that in, in my experience as uh, the Colombian daughter of Colombians, um, you're, we were constantly receiving news <laughs> from, yes. from Colombia about what was happening there, you know, what um, tragedy, scandal, disaster, everything, right? And all those things, you know, landed in my household um, and the only people around to process it with were my family. Um, so the story about Maida Sanchez, you know, I remember that. That was a, a story that had a, a big impact on me when I was growing mm-hmm. up. Um, it's um, 
you know, something you never forget. Um, as you said, you, you came across it now. You know, it's really, you know, it's one, of, one of those sort of otherworldly human moments. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, I, I mean, how could I not? That's just such a part of the fabric of, a, you know, um, the reality of, of a Colombian of a certain generation. Mm-hmm. Um, the same with Ingrid Betancourt. You know, a lot of people have very different opinions about her. Um, and um, actually, oh, last time I was in Colombia, you know, she she was there promoting her book, so you know, I ran into her a bit. But oh, um, but um, you know, her story is also fascinating and complicated, and certainly we only know a fraction of what really what really happened with her experience. But these are stories that belong to Colombia, but also belong to the world in different ways, and certainly they mean something mm-hmm. to people. Who, um, who are either within the country or in diaspora. So there it is very important, but there's one more story, you know, that actually um, occurred while I was already writing Infinite Country, which is the story of this, uh, it's a true story, the, a woman who was lost in the Amazon with her children. Mm-hmm. And she was um, going back, traveling, you know, she'd gone someplace to work, like at a home, you know, in the jungle. And she was going back to her home um, in a town not so far away. And it was a trip she made, but she got lost. And she oh. ended up um, deep into the jungle with her children. And so oh she was goodness. lost for more than 40 days with her children. Oh, my gosh. And um, so that story... Um, it, you know, comes up in Infinite Country. And right. it's also mm-hmm. one of those stories that you just cannot believe. And so, of course, mm-hmm. when she and her children were rescued, um, they were rescued absolutely by chance by a fisherman who um, happened to go down a little tributary of the Amazon that he never went down before. And, you know, just for some reason, he felt compelled to go down that way. And he saw this mother and her children just like, um, you know, almost dying at the the bank oh of the gosh. of the river, and um, and so he rescued them. Um, and so one of the things they told uh, rescuers when they were brought to this um, nearby, you know, the nearest city where they could be treated, and they were treated for a very long time because you can imagine all the illnesses <laughs> and bugs and stuff they caught there. Hers. Um, the, so the mother started talking about what, what it was like to be lost in the jungle. And <laughs> at one point she heard, you know, the jaguar cries. And of course there was, you know, the, the snakes, the anacondas and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things. So that, that also is a story that made a really big impression on me. And, uh, and that's why I put it in the book. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, we want to also ask you one more listener question from Irene Carney. She wants to know, what was your choice behind shifting the narrator point of view? Oh, so she thinks that there was a narrator shift? That's, That's yeah. <laughs> oh. What about you all? What do you think? I think we, well, I came to the conclusion that it was always written by Karina. It's just that that, that, that was introduced later on. But it was always through her voice, even though we did get the different perspectives, which I so loved because everybody experienced this, the circumstances they went through differently. So it was really great to hear the different voices, but it was always through Karina putting all of that together. 
Yeah, um, you are right. It, it, there, there's not a shift. It's only, it's only Karina, you know, the whole way um, through. It's just that she's, you know, not centering herself as the narrator until a certain point. And the reason for that is that you need to know about her sister and her parents before you can, you know, even get to where she is located in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, the only time she steps away and gives the stage to another voice is to her brother who sort of mm-hmm. won't let her speak for him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but it's it's Karina's book, and as you find out, it's sort of her project. And and I think that's the case in many families. There is um, very often that one person who's kind of like the, the family memory collector, the person who is yeah. paying the closest attention, the person asking the most questions and mm-hmm. the person who's really trying to make sense of it all, you know, and, and putting that family story together. I think that's really typical um, also in, in um, families, immigrant families, of course, in this country, everyone, almost everyone is, you know, uh, the product of immigration, but in families that have immigration as part of their recent history, because almost as quick as language, stories are lost. And very often they're the only thing that you take with you when you immigrate, right? And without repetition and memory and sharing them, they're gone. They're gone forever, you know. Uh, And so in that way, Karina recognizes the importance of that, of of remembering, of telling, Mm -hmm. of repeating, of writing it down. Did you always know that she was going to reveal herself to be the author of the story? Or did she sort of reveal herself to you at some point as you were writing and brainstorming? Uh, Well, if I think back to the earliest incarnations uh, of when Infinite Country was starting to take shape, I wasn't entirely clear. You know, there's, there's kind of a period before you really you know, become overcome by a project, so to speak. When you're working out the voice, you're working out the structure, and and those sorts of things. So I think at a certain point, I knew that I wanted to tell the story of a family who was having the collective experience of a family immigrating, but also tell it in a way that could speak to each family member's private experience. Mm. Uh, and the things that they're not sharing with one another as a result of that collective experience. Uh, I wasn't, you know, always exactly sure how I was going to do this. There was some experimentation involved. Um, but then it started to become clear to me that, of course, you know, Karina's the witness. She is the family witness, and she's got, you know, the highest stakes in the game, practically. Right. And... Um, you know, she's she's this kind of car- personality. She she cares deeply. She's deeply wounded. She's very smart, and she, of course, she she belongs to to both worlds, and in some ways also belongs to neither world, in that she's never lived in Colombia and she's not a documented citizen here. Right. That's so complex and complicated, and very typical. I just I wanted to go back and touch on what you were saying about the importance of telling stories. And I don't know if you know this, but Mariana's mom is a teacher in Miami. And so we wanted to know from you as a professor in South Florida, I'm sure that many of your students are immigrants or the children of immigrants. 
Are you seeing stories of immigrant of immigration and global families from your creative writing students? Yeah, I have been teaching for a very long time, <laughs> and I've been teaching, uh, you know, at different schools here in Miami. So that's always, you know, it's uh, I've always see the stories as students want to write about their origins and their worlds and their communities. So I, I see it um, all the time. And Miami, I think, is a very special place in the sense that, you know, so many, the majority of people here um, have roots elsewhere. And mm-hmm. there's kind of a, you know, it, it's very normalized here opposed to in other places. But something that really moved me when I moved to Miami, um, you know, about 17 years ago or something, um, is that when I moved here, I saw a, a notice for a support group for loss of homeland and that's oh. not something I'd ever seen anywhere else. And it really moved me because I thought, wow, they get it, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, really, how loss of homeland is like a death. And there's <laughs> so much grieving involved. It's, as I said before, it's open-ended. There's no resolution. Like with death, you know, you just learn to live, to, you know, and to move in the direction of forward. When you have such profound pain and that they created a space where people could go and talk about this and and share their feelings about it. And this is the only place where I have seen that. I have never seen that elsewhere. I'm sure it exists elsewhere, but I have never seen it. And I came here from New York, okay? So that really moved me. And I think that that also sort of opened a door in me with, you know, speaking about that whole interior life that immigrants and their families have, which is something that we don't often see written about or explored. Sometimes we see like, oh, the cultural clashes between the first and the second uh-huh. generation. Oh, you yes. know, this and that. Very, very sort of uh, superficial aspects to yeah. to that experience um, as opposed to the, the real deep, you know, um, heartache and loss and all that that entails, um, it's it's really something that um, that moved me when I saw those support group uh, mm. notices. That's incredible. Yeah, how can it not? Right, wow. Do you by any chance have any uh, resources that you could recommend uh, to those who would like to donate time or money into the immigration issue that we have here now? I do, as a matter of fact. So if you do have interest in um, helping out in some ways. Um, A wonderful organization that you can support is Raices Texas. Mm. Um, So you could uh, go to their website, which is www.raicestexas.org. And also, if you wanted to um, support something going on on the ground in Colombia, there's a wonderful organization called Proyecto Unión. So you can mm-hmm. also check out their website, proyectounion.org. And they do uh, wonderful work helping people in underserved communities, especially in the time of COVID, which has hit Colombia in such a profound uh, and devastating way. And they do excellent work. Thank you. And I'll put both of those links in our show notes. Yeah, thank you for that. Should I move to our final question? I think so. Okay. Patricia, our final question is always just a fun little bite of something. So our final question today is, I think the books a person loves says a lot about them, obviously. 
so much so that I have a few cherished books that I read over and over and over again that I've covered completely in stickers <laughs> because I believe that anyone who sees me reading them will have an instant insight into my soul. And it just feels too personal. It makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> so I want to know if you three are willing to divulge what is your favorite book? And I know that's tough to answer. So if not your favorite, what is a single book that would give us just a peek into your soul? And you don't have to tell us what the peek is. Just what's the book? Well, I'm going to narrow down my options by going with just Colombian books. Okay. Okay. So one of my favorite, favorite Colombian books is Rosario Tijeras by Jorge Franco, which is amazing. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Um, another one set in Bogota mm. based on true events and one of those shocking news stories that we were talking about before. Um, the, the, in Spanish, it's called Los Divinos by Laura Restrepo, but okay. there's a wonderful translation by the Uruguayan writer Carolina de Robertis, who's another oh, amazing writer. And so it's called The Divine Boys, available in English. And another um, amazing book called, uh, in Spanish, La Perra, and it's The Bitch in English by Pilar Quintana, a really slim book, very moving and very beautiful. So I would definitely run out and get those. Love it. We will check yes. those out for sure. <laughs> Maybe one of them can be an upcoming book selection on oh. these books drunk. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Well, this is such a tough question because I'm always reading. But the one that came, that kept coming back for me is one that I have reread several times is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Oh, yes. And it's just, it's also, it's just such a short, a quick read, but just full of gems and one that I, I keep coming back to when I need those reminders, when I need a deep exhale. Mm. I come back mm. to that book. Yeah, I also agree, Brandy. This is a very tough final question. <laughs> but immediately what came to mind was a book I read in high school, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. Oh, yes. Because oh. you really find out through both characters what life is, is truly about and where the heart and soul lies. And it's something mm. that um, I lead my life with and trying to really listen to my heart as opposed to all the exteriors that can infiltrate you on a daily basis. Yeah. Mine is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which I am trying to work my way up to reading in Spanish, but I'm I'm not confident enough yet, but I will get there. You can do (laughs) it. I read it over and over again in English. (laughs) All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. If you have an insight or a question you'd like us to discuss on an episode, shoot us an email at arethesebooksdrunk at gmail.com for a chance to be featured on our listener question segment. Yes. A very special shout out to our guest host today, Patricia Engel. Thank you so much for giving a voice to Colombian immigrants, for writing a masterpiece, and for sharing your time with us. 
us. This afternoon was an absolute pleasure for us three. Truly. It really was. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I so enjoyed speaking with you and I love your podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> and on that note, keep staying tuned to our Instagram page at Are These Books Drunk for whatever we're drinking and reading next week because this is a bonus episode and we don't know where this is airing. So... <laughs> Make sure that you read along and sip along with us. Because it's always always happy happy hour hour here. Here. (laughs) Gracias, Patricia. Patricia, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.